Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the occupier's champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to cressa.com Portland to connect with the Portland advisory team. From that cast creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Mike, it's great to have you back on the show. Yeah, good to see you, Dan. So uh, this is the maybe fifth time you've been on the podcast, fourth or fifth, I can't remember. For folks that don't know, Mike uh, Rogaway is a business reporter at The Oregonian, and he's my person for all things, what is going on in our economy and certain companies. So just really, uh, you know, grateful to have you back on, Mike. Yeah, I I always enjoy it. So I think like, this is at least the second one we've done during the pandemic, right? Yeah, so I think we did one maybe back in, uh, April or May. And now here we are. And I think it's a good jumping off point is there was some research that came out yesterday. I don't know if like the Portland Business Alliance kind of underwrit it or, you know, sponsor some of it. So I, I don't know if you had a chance to dig through that, but maybe we can just start there and uh, yeah, share absolutely. some. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I have been through it and um, yeah, I have some familiarity with, with what they found. Okay. So what's going on? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I think the their their big takeaway is, you know, to me, what jumped out is, and they hired Eco Northwest, John Tapania and his crew okay. to do some analysis as part of an annual thing they do. But every year they, they focus on specific subjects. And um, one thing they focused on this year was, you know, COVID deaths. And our death rate is something around a third of the national death rate uh, oh. in the Portland area. And... Um, so it, you know, extrapolating that out across population, you know, Eco Northwest comes to the conclusion that, you know, people save 2000 lives with health restrictions here. Mm. I, I, I don't know, you know, how it, to some degree, you know, it may be just good fortune, but it's been over a long enough and consistent enough period that maybe that's not true. And I, I asked John Tapania, you know, well, what's, how much of it is the orders, the rules that we implemented in Oregon, which are stricter than elsewhere. Right. Uh, and how much of it is uh, the fact that people are are just being careful. And he thought it was overwhelmingly the latter. Hmm. Because the data seems to suggest that Oregonians were careful, uh, even when the rules didn't say they absolutely had to be. And... So, you know, that's encouraging. Uh, and it doesn't appear, with some notable exceptions, to have had a, a huge di- a disproportionate effect on our economy. Our, our jobless rate has generally been lower than the nation's during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning months, it was, you know, right about in the middle. 
uh, uh, but or right about on par with the nation. But lately, it's been consistently lower. Now, you know that's fine if you so long as you're not working at a gym or yeah. a restaurant or a hotel. And there, it's it's just just been an enormous hit. And probably, you know, we we can see, you know, that Eco Northwest also looked at open table reservations. You know, restaurant activity has at least dine-in restaurant activity has been considerably weaker here than elsewhere, which isn't shocking. We've taken a harder line on that, mm -hmm. uh, but it's impossible to tell to what degree, um, you know, takeaway service or eating outside without a reservation has compensated for that. It's, we yeah, don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm going to take kind of a, you, you know, I'm, I'm neutral on the guidelines and what is it, what it's meant for the economy. And of course it sounds like if, if that's contributed to us having a lower rate of COVID death, that's, that's amazing. But you know, we're at the point now where we are a state that has very compared to some other states, low infection rates, low death. I mean, what does that mean for opening things up? I know some of the restaurants, the, the uh, restrictions got eased or unemployment's down to 6%. So it's, you know, getting close to what it was pre pandemic. So I think a lot of, if I'm a business owner that has one of these gyms or things and maybe frustrated and what, when you're looking at other States, so what's, uh, what's going on? Well, so what was it a week ago? Um, you know, our, our infection rates got below the threshold where the metro area, the tri-county area, was at the highest threshold in the state's ranking. And so yeah. when we got down one threshold, it meant, you know, you can have indoor gym workouts, you can have indoor dining again. Of course, then an ice storm hit. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, it, you know, it, you couldn't get to the gym or the restaurant if you wanted to. Uh, you know, I to this point, there isn't any sign of a bottom to these falling rates. They just keep going and going and going. Infection rates are now at where they were in October. Still, you know, something like a third or 50% higher than they were in the summer when things seem to be stable and low. Um, but it doesn't appear, at least immediately, we're going to be bouncing back and forth between open, closed, open, closed. Okay. Yeah. It seems like it's moving in the right direction. So, you know, I, I think there is some reason to believe as the vaccine rollout continues that there will be gradual reopening um, step by step by step uh, rather than bouncing back and forth between opening and closing. Yeah. The variants are the virus variants are the wild card. Mm -hmm. uh, will they take off faster than we can vaccinate people? Uh, and might some of them emerge in a way that are generally resi genuinely resistant to vaccines? You know, that's all wild cards out there. Yeah. Um, and we just we just don't know yet. Um, and I'm not I, I don't I have no expertise in that, but it, at least we can see the variables there. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think there is cause to believe you know, our, our quick recovery that we'd hoped for, you know, coming into the fall, that didn't materialize. You know, we were bouncing back pretty fast. And then we headed back down again in terms of unemployment rate and shutdowns as the virus picked up. Uh, but if things continue in the direction they are, uh, if schools start to reopen, the recovery could accelerate quite a bit uh, going into the summer. 
So, you know, decoupling from the, the state and the guidelines and things, and we look at the business community, what are you hearing from businesses as far as bringing people back to offices that, you know, are in the more of the white collar settings or even how they're doing? I mean, I know you cover very specific industries and tech and business. So there seems yeah. to be kind of a disparity. And, um, so, I, you know, I'd love to get into that well I, I, I people talk about wall street and main street and the divide there you know the stock market is continues to roar uh and yet you know mom and pop shops are struggling and and how can that be well what one one factor is that wall street is you know forward looking and it is betting right now on a quicker recovery but if you're buying inventory and stocking your shelves you need to make those sales now to cover yeah. those costs. And so that's kind of the gap where a lot of mom and pop shops are, are struggling with being, um, you know, just trying to make ends meet in general retail consumer spending has been, you know, only down modestly. And, uh, during the pandemic in some sectors like groceries, it's been way up. Mm -hmm. Uh, but in certain sectors like restaurants and even clothing boutiques is another interesting one that struggled uh, throughout this. They're, they're having a hard time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'll say one of the main issues that we're facing here is what's the future of downtown look like? Oh, Mike, I guess we can get into that right now. So <laughs> <laughs> I think, ah, geez, um, I don't even know where to start with that because you know, I think people are obviously bullish on, on Portland still, but I think the hard truth of it is when you're down there, there is something going on and there's, um, it's not just, you know, I know you're in the media, it's not just the media, right? Saying it, there is a reality of, of what's going on downtown. So, yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's so many factors, so many threads to this, uh, you know, COVID is, absolutely the main thing the pba did its member survey and all oh, people had all the complaints about the protests and the homelessness and and everything else all their complaints about downtown added up were half as great as their concerns about covid you know that's why people aren't downtown it's mm -hmm. covid 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 mm -hmm. now the next question is suppose the virus disappears tomorrow are we all going back to the office or are people going to say business is going to say, Oh, I'm going to keep my real estate costs low. Or do people say, I don't want to go back. Let me work from home. Uh, are people either because, you know, it's more convenient or people may have changed culturally during this time. They may not want to be around lots of other people, even if it's not particularly unsafe. Yeah. And I so I, I think that's a wild card. Economists generally believe that the commercial real estate market will return. Uh, but then Portland has this reputational damage. And we see this in, you know, yeah. and, 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 you know, that that could be fleeting. Uh, that could be a, a transient thing, you know, based on what people saw on TV last summer. Mm -hmm. uh, or it, it, it could be something more severe. I, I think we might have talked about this last time. I feel yeah. like downtown Portland has a few things going for it that maybe other downtowns don't. If you look at San Francisco or Seattle, like San Francisco's on a peninsula. It's literally out in the middle of the bay. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and the ocean. Uh, you know, uh, Seattle is pushed up against on one side Puget Sound and on the other side Lake Washington. 
they're not in the middle of anything. Portland is right in the middle of the metro area. You know, whether you're coming from Vancouver or Hillsborough or Wilsonville or Gresham, Portland is equidistant from all the population centers. Many of our roads go either right next to it or right through it. Um, it's very beautiful. It, mm -hmm. it frankly is. Uh, it's much more inviting in terms of the scale of the buildings and the areas downtown than the other downtowns we mentioned, downtown San Francisco or downtown Seattle, mm -hmm. you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the big glass walls around you. You know, on the weekends, those, have always, those cities have always been dead in a way that Portland hasn't been. So I think there is cause to believe that things will come back when things open up, when there's stores, when there's offices. But the wild card is just how much businesses want to bring back, bring people back and how much workers want to come back. Yeah, I think is the cat are you going back to that culturally, you know, is the cat out of the bag? Have people gotten used to this so much that it's going to be a kind of more of a hybrid per permanent thing? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think economists feel no. Um, um, that that this isn't a permanent thing, mm -hmm. but it is something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think, uh, and yeah. and you know how how it looks in the future. I I think it's just really hard to tell. You know, it, uh, just across from our old office, a huge new uh, residential development has opened up. Right. That, or is just about to, they've been working on that for 18 months, something like that. Uh, and it's, it's just about to, to open up. Do people want to live downtown now? Uh, I, I just don't know. My theory is, so I moved here in the early 2000s, but I mean, I grew up in Oregon. So I would come up to Portland in the 90s a lot. And it was then, you know, you it was you still had that funkiness of downtown where it's like, I don't know if you remember like the church of Elvis, like all these random creative, you know, the, the Pearl district was not what the Pearl district is. It's like, you know, lofts and actual artists. Maybe that's going to come back a little bit, or maybe it's too late for that. But I think maybe that element will pre press back up again, which I'm all for. So I, I don't know though. Certainly in, 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 Retail and in restaurants, the cheaper the real estate is, the more creative people are. You know, the more expensive real estate markets don't have the most interesting restaurants and shops. It's always yeah. been that way. Yeah. So this could be an opportunity. Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, yesterday, uh, as we're talking uh, on the 18th, Gucci announced it's opening a big store in Pioneer Place Mall. I saw so that. that. That's as luxury a brand as you get. So yeah. clearly they're thinking people are coming back downtown or they got offered a screaming deal on rent, but probably Gucci doesn't make its real estate decisions based on who's got the cheapest rent. Right. Looking right. for who they can sell to. Hmm. Uh, and then a, a hat shop made a, a big show of saying, well, we're going to open our first store in downtown Portland. Uh, you know, I, I think there, there are going to be opportunities for people who are looking for a bargain, uh, you know, the other thing, the, the thing that made downtown Portland appealing, as I say, it's, it's centrally located. People are tired of driving in their cars and getting yeah. stuck in traffic. And if you live in Portland, as many people do, and want to avoid that, downtown is a good spot for that. Uh, it's just con for the same reason it's convenient on the highways. You know, all the transit lines run through there. It's easy to bike there. I think even if people don't literally bike to work. I think a lot of people like the idea that they could. 
Mike, you're starting to sound like an optimist. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, also there's a, we'll get into tech because I know that's an industry you focus on, but you know, I live in this, the West suburbs kind of almost as far out as you, as you get them on the Metro area. And I, it's insane how many people are moving out to where I, I live. And so I don't know if that's a trend that's been going on before all this, but, uh, I also know some, you know, commercial brokers that a lot of companies are really looking into the suburbs to move things or expand. So the sub in Lake Oswego, you look at some of the developments there, it's it's crazy. There's a lot of interesting things going on. Yeah, well, for sure. You know, a lot of Portland's best known restaurants is our our, our, our food writer, Michael Russell, has written our o- opening outposts in a development in Lake Oswego. So you can yeah. have some of that big city food and still uh, live in the burbs. Uh, I think. The wild card is, you know, again, with downtown central location, if you're going to locate in, you know, Tiger, Tualatin, Beaverton, Hillsborough, or on the other side, you know, Clackamas or, or Gresham, uh, or Vancouver, Vancouver less so because the traffic going the opposite way isn't such a big deal, but you're really asking your employees to move there. Yeah. Too. And that's a big switch. But downtown is still centrally located. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, I think it, I, I'm inclined to think that people will still gravitate toward the center of the city for its, its convenience. Now, at least in the short run, you know, as my colleague, Jamie Goldberg has reported, you know, rents in Portland's urban court have been dropping for the first time in many, many years after right. years of, of steep increases. And they are continuing to rise in the areas around the central, the central part of the city. Uh, demographic information suggests people are still moving to the area. It looks like they're moving out of Seattle in small numbers, but they are moving out. And there's evidence that that's happening in the Bay Area, too, Again, small, relatively small numbers. There is no evidence of people moving out of Portland or the Portland area. Uh, people are still coming here from elsewhere. What about the rest of the state? I mean, I took a, my family and I spent a couple of weeks in central Oregon to do zoom school, which is depressing, um, and work from there. And I was floored of, we were in bend of what's going on there and just the, the frothiness of, uh, people yeah. moving there, the real estate market. And also I talked, I had a chance to talk to some, you know, folks that relocated to start companies there. And they told me candidly, this feels like what Portland was in 2003, 2004. So I, I think the bulletin newspaper in Bend may have just had a story that, you know, Portland building permits are, are tanking. They are way, way down, you know, falling faster than during the great recession. In Bend, it's really thriving. You know, these Zoom Town things, it's 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 definitely a real phenomenon. I, I do think there's a ceiling to it, though. Um, you know, in the same way that, you know, big companies don't locate in Portland because there's sort of a, a limit. Um, I, um, what Dave Hirsch, Jive Software's longtime CEO, former CEO, is to call a Portland threshold. You know, there's only so much you could find locally in Portland. You know, and Jive moved to to Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in terms of the number of workers you need and the specific skills or experience, if you're looking for executives, Ben does not have the capacity to grow to that scale. 
it's just not possible given you know what's there it's yeah. always going to be a small to mid-sized city uh and so i think it's it's not likely to you know harbor really large companies with one exception uh les schwab yeah uh but even Schwab, uh, you know, they just sold. Uh, and I know it was a concern for them for years. They were in Prineville for years and said, okay, mm-hmm. well, we'll at least go to Bend. Mm-hmm. If, if you're going to get a little larger than that, I think being there would be difficult. That said, I don't think there's any reason to believe people will leave Bend or mm-hmm. that the growth rate there will stop. It's gorgeous. Yeah, uh, The climate is mostly mild. Mm-hmm. And it's not that hard to get in and out of. Well, you know, don't like, th- yeah, I was going to say, Mike, don't think I wasn't looking at Zillow when I was there, but, uh, it's you know, also Spokane's, yeah. uh, uh, other cities, Spokane's, you know, candidly a little remote and the weather's not as good. Uh, I think cities like that are, are harder. Walla Walla, Pasco, you know, it's just too remote. Bend, mm-hmm. not that remote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the weather's really good. So I, I think, you know, within the context of, of what Bend is, it's going to continue to grow. And I think if you live there and you don't want that to happen, it's going to get very unpleasant. The yeah. upside is that there are a number of communities around Bend that are sort of Bend-like, like Prineville, mm-hmm. uh, which is very pretty. Yeah. And maybe could be a new Bend if you wanted to the have a new one. Bend. I love Pry- Prineville. Uh, Prineville could be the new old Bend. <laughs> the new old Bend. And then, of course, you, it is beautiful there. I'm going through sisters and things. So, but... Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Well, let's get into the, the your, um, I don't know if I would call it a passion. Maybe it's a little bit of uh, <laughs> uh, push and pull on this. It's the tech industry. And I know you've, you know, you've been always on the forefront of covering Intel and there are largest private employers. Is that correct still? Largest corporate employer. Corporate. So Providence is sometimes close to them. They're, they've both been growing. So 21,000, 22,000. I'm not sure where Providence is at now, okay. but that's where Intel is. Okay. So they're, you know, obviously a, um, a major uh, source of employment here and they've been going through some things. So let's just, let's give us the update. What's going on with Intel and what's the future? Um, Intel is it's just the most fascinating moment uh, there. You know, they, they, for years, they dominated the industry because they both engineered and manufactured their chips. They had this integrated um, mo- business model where other other companies did one or the other. It's very expensive to own a chip factory, but they they stuck with it because they said that's the fastest and most efficient way to bring new chips to market. Our engineers are working tightly with our the folks in our factories. As soon as we have the new design ready to go. We move it to the fab uh, and then we start pumping them out. All this work is done in Hillsborough, mm-hmm. uh, the Ron Laraker's uh, campus near Hillsborough Stadium. And that worked great for years. About five, six years ago, it started maybe seven years ago, that model started to creak for reasons that weren't clear and maybe still in some ways aren't. And so they had problems with their 14 nanometer generator generation of processors, big problems with their 10 nanometer, but they said their seven nanometer, which was due in 2022, up or 2021, 2022, this is going great. Then last summer they said, oh, that's screwed up too. It's going to be a year late. (laughs) And investors weren't having it. This company lost something like $45 billion in market value in one day. Yeah. And people said, you need a radical change. 
you need to separate these, you need to, what it, Intel wasn't contemplating that, but what they were considering was to send their advanced manufacturing from Oregon, you know, their most advanced chips to their rivals in Asia, probably Taiwan Semiconductor, TSMC. Mm. Uh, and that would have been a major disruption of the business model, uh, major diminishing of Oregon's place. And they promised a decision in January, which way are they going to go? So then they did something radical. They replaced their CEO and they brought back Pat Gelsinger, who was a 30-year vet, one of their top Oregon executives, but left in 2009. They said, he's coming, but he's been running VMware since 2012. He's coming back and he's going to get the band back together. He's going to bring back their top engineers after years of chasing folks out. And he's yeah. going to restore the glory days. And he's not shy about saying that this, this is the company that we all, um, that we all um, know it can be. This is the company we remember. We're going back to that. Okay. Uh, investors were very excited when he was hired. Then he said, oh, we're probably not going to send our manufacturing to Asia. We're going to keep that ourselves. Stock tanked. People mm. are like, ah, oh, he can't do it. <laughs> but then a couple of weeks after that, he didn't start until this past Monday, February 15th. Um, people warmed to him again. They said, oh, maybe he can pull it off. And so the stock is up. I think it was trading around 50 uh, when they announced his hiring. It's up somewhere over 60 now. You know, that's a big increase in the space of a month. What is that, 20%? Yeah. So, uh, and it's a stock that hadn't really moved much in a few years. So mm. investors are more than giving him the benefit of the doubt at this point. Uh, that said, he's got to identify fundamentally what's wrong with Intel's manufacturing process. Is it something cultural that he could fix? Is it something engineering he could fix? Or is it something either about the laws of physics, as these mm -hmm. chips get smaller and smaller, it's hard to replicate, or is it something uh, about Intel's business model? Does the integrated research and engineering and manufacturing not work anymore? And should they separate them out like NVIDIA and AMD um, and now Apple? They're all engineering their own chips and then they send them to these contractors. They call them foundries in the chip industry to make them. Is that model more nimble? Is it, does it mm -hmm. give people more ability to, to specialize? Uh, Intel's business, Intel sales are solid. Uh, they, you know, people staying at home during the pandemic, we all bought new computers. Mm -hmm. uh, data centers are roaring, but their competitors are making little inroads, uh, steady inroads uh, there. Uh, and, you know, it, it poses a big risk. What are people that work there say? I know, I know you have uh, your way of getting information. <laughs> so what are, what are people that actually are on the ground there saying? So there was a lot of dislike of the former CEO, Brian Kurzanich, uh, who got canned in 2018 because he was conducting, uh, he had conducted in the past a personal relationship with an employee in violation of corporate policy. People did not like him. And um, that was very good for me as a reporter because they would leak to me what, <laughs> what was going on. Yeah. Uh, there, his successor, Bob Swan, was a finance professional who was very well liked. Uh, you know, everyone said, oh, he's a straight shooter. You know, he's, he's got a really good organizational skill. We really like him. But the company's performance was not, technically, was not, not reflecting that. Mm. Uh, and this is a company that is 
engineering through and through, or always had been. Gordon Moore, Andy Grove, Robert Noyce, you know, these are the folks that that built the company and it's very much part of their culture. So it's it's not at all surprising. It was shocking they made the they brought Gelsinger back when they did, but it's not at all shocking that they he was their com- the company's first chief technology officer. You know, he calls himself a, a geek at heart. He's he's an engineer's engineer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think people are really excited. You know, he put out a statement to the, the thing he said to employees, uh, which we reported uh, last month. You know, he, he held a meeting the day after they announced him. He says, we have to be better than some lifestyle company in Cupertino at making <laughs> chips. And of course, he's jabbing at Apple, whose yeah, headquarters yeah. are in Cupertino. But he's doing it in a good natured way. And he's rallying people. Uh, and. You know, people responded to that. Then when he hired, we got hired this, when he formally started this week, he wasn't hired. He was hired last month. When mm-hmm. he was formally started this week, he sent everyone a note and Intel released that. It was the most straightforward, lack mm-hmm. of jargon, easy to understand, you know, uh, note I've seen an Intel executive ever issue. It was just mm-hmm. a, a straightforward rallying cry. These are the fundamentals we need to get right. Culture, engineering, product. Um, hmm. So, I, you know, we certainly identified what the company needs to do. It faces real challenges around structure, business model, and technology. It may yeah. be that what he wants to do simply isn't possible. Mm. Uh, it may not be possible to catch up after five, six, seven years of, of engineering missteps to, to catch up. But investors are persuaded that he's got a shot at it. And if, if he succeeds... Uh, and Intel again has the most advanced processors, then their market position will be much more secure. Yeah, it'll be a win for us locally too. So, well, let's um, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Since you know the pandemic, I've seen a lot of exciting startups get funding here, and I've interviewed a few, and a lot, some of them are second time founders here. So, what's I know you get pitched a lot on these things, so. Yeah, what's up with that? What's going on? What's well, this is yeah. You, you'll recall this is sort of an echo of what happened during the Great Recession. You know, everyone lost their jobs at at big corporations, yeah. and they went out and started their own stuff. Yeah, uh, I think you know, in the same way we were talking earlier, cheap rent is it, the places with cheap rent are where you have the most interesting shops and restaurants. Mm-hmm. You know, when the economy is down, that's when you start the most interesting companies. Everyone's not just trying to do the same thing. They're trying right. to be more creative and inventive. Uh, I will say, I, I think there's sort of a, a yin and a yang. Portland has always been an outpost economy. And, mm. you know, not always, but, you know, it, it's where people have had engineering teams and things like that right. um, in hardware or marketing um, or customer support uh, in other fields. Uh, I think that's, worked for Oregon for many years and is continuing to work for it. You know, a lot of companies are say, oh, we're based in Portland, but they're, you look around, they're really based everywhere. Yeah. 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 And I think that's kind of working for us now that, you know, companies are saying, well, yeah, we're, we're in Portland, but they're also really in Israel and San Francisco and lots of other places. Um, But it's also kind of working against us if we want to grow the big companies that we lost over the past, um, 20 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't had a tech IPO since 2004. 
Mm. Uh, and we've had just a succession of large companies, you know, FEI, Mentor, ESI, um, FEI, uh, and now FLIR uh, sell off right. uh, to larger companies elsewhere. That's not strange. As companies get old, their markets mature, they sell elsewhere. But we're not, we've, we've not really been the acquirer. We haven't been the one rolling up. There's nobody in Oregon who's been rolling up the other companies. And we haven't produced anything to replace what's left. And I think there is, economists have said this from the beginning, there is some value from the beginning. Well, for the last 10 years or so, there is some value in having a corporate headquarters because that's where the money collects, the big money collects. In an income tax dependent state, that yeah. matters. Yeah, yeah. And then it also matters in that when you've got a cut, you're most likely cut off you know, a distant limb rather than something <laughs> that's that's really core to your heart. Yeah. And I think we have seen some evidence of that this time out, um, but maybe just a little so far. I mean, Airbnb, I, they won't say whether they still have any Portland presence at all, mm. but they had uh, steadily reduced their, or they had sharply reduced their presence in the first weeks of the pandemic and others have cut back too. Well, some of the potential IPOs uh, we look at Vacasa, we look at JAMA. I mean, what's, is that, are those real, realistic on the horizon or? I, 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 I don't see an IPO imminent for JAMA. I don't have a, a clear read on them, but you know, they've, they've undergone a, a fair amount of change in the last, um, few years since they sold to a private equity firm. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, Vacasa, you know, if we talked 11 months ago, things looked really bad for them yeah. because of vacation industry. Well, you know, their model, you know, they so they manage vacation rentals uh, for the owners. They list them online and they keep them clean and maintained. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that's something people could still do in the pandemic is, okay, I can't fly to, or I don't want to fly to Cabo or Switzerland or mm -hmm. wherever. But if I want to go to Sun River, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. That's fine. That's safe. Mm -hmm. I don't have to get out of my car the whole way there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so their business has held up much better than people thought. Vacas is another interesting one, though. Again, their CEO does not work or live here. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, would they, would they gradually gravitate somewhere else? Puppet has talked about an IPO, too. They've said they want to do that this year. Uh, I don't have a sense of the market appetite or their or the you know, sales growth or their profitability. I would say with Puppet, you know, their investors, when they when did they get their first round of investment? Somewhere around 2007. You know, those funds, you know, they, they've taken funds through 2016 and I think even as recently as 2019. But those old funds are want to wind down. They want to get return their money to investors. So that they need an exit. Yeah. I would say it's far more likely that Puppet gets sold than that they IPO. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, the rival chef in Seattle got sold last year. Okay. I believe it was just last year. Uh, so I'd say that's most likely. Vecasa, an IPO, I, I think is possible. Um, but again, they could get rolled up into somebody larger. Yeah. And if well, they do so go public, I, I don't know if they would go public as an Oregon company. Mm. Yeah, I know their new CFO doesn't live here too. Or um, Yeah, so. I, think, I think that's right. I mean, but it's a pandemic. Who knows? 
you know, true. maybe when that ends, they say, ah, Portland is the right place to do it. They got a wonderful office. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's, for, I know, I know people that work there and it's, it's really great to see them bounce back because uh, it was looking kind of dire there. Uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Again, uh, a privately held company, I, yeah. I don't have a clear window into how things are going, but it certainly doesn't appear anything like the dire situation that they seem to be in very briefly in March and April. Yeah, I mean, I've been used them a couple of times since this past you know six months, and it's it's been an awesome experience the way they've kind of uh, done it. So, well, as we kind of you know maybe wrap up, and I'm an outsider looking in now. I don't work at the Oregonian anymore, and I always like to to talk shop a little bit on yeah. on the on media, and <laughs> I never like put you in a, a an awkward position. But you're also you're on the editorial side, so you can kind of <laughs> talk about it. So what, what's going on with the business? It uh, does not specific to Oregonian necessarily, just in media in general, like through all this. And well, I, I the advertising market has been a lot stronger than people expected. It has not been. You know, it's, it's not like Vecasa, where people thought it was going to be a disaster, and it you know, appears to have come back quite, quite strongly. But yeah. it's come back reasonably well. Um, and so I, I think advertising-based uh, media has done you know, uh, reasonably well. We implemented in May, may have been April, we cut everyone's pay by 10%, mm-hmm. uh, stopped contributing to 401ks, and we said we're going to do that through the end of the year. Well, they lifted that pay cut um, sometime last fall, and okay. then now they're contributing to 401ks again. You know, I, I think our business is probably representative of what's going on generally. We made one big switch uh, in the early days of the pandemic. We started offering digital subscri- subscriptions mm-hmm. and putting some of our articles behind a paywall. It's something most other media had done several years ago, but we had resisted as part of a, a strategy to focus on digital advertising. That has worked quite well for us. Um, right. uh, we have disclosed subscription numbers in some cases, but I'm not sure if we've disclosed them recently, so I won't say what they are, but okay. uh, you know, we're still a lot smaller than, for example, the number of subscribers that they have in Seattle or Boston or Minneapolis, which started this years before, but our trajectory is at least as strong as those markets. Mm-hmm. Um, people have proven that they'll pay for for news. It's mm-hmm. very encouraging uh, during the pandemic. And so it's a small part of our revenue right now, but it has the potential to be a, a large boost. And I, I think we see that all over. People are committed to quality informed news. And I think in this ecosystem, in this market, I wrote an article probably in April about how tough you know, there were layoffs all over. Mm-hmm. I think, I think things have. There is reason to believe that things are on more solid footing. I, I don't doubt for a moment that some outlets, particularly smaller ones, are in more fragile positions. But I think the big collapse that some people had feared a few years ago probably isn't imminent. Mm. And clearly, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, really thriving. Just you know, the, you might have seen the, Wall, the Washington Post adding eight new technology uh, reporting positions. Oh wow! That number may be high, may, higher than than it actually is, but it's somewhere in that neighborhood. You know, it, it's it's really strong. The New York Times is just enormous reach now uh, yeah. with individual subscriptions. The Wall Street Journal appears to be thriving with their subscription model. So, you know, I I think. Obviously, things are are fragmented, um, 
here and everywhere, but there seem to be uh, people are now identifying ways to make money in this business. And maybe it won't be what it was in 1998, but it seems like there's a, we've, we're at least nearing a floor. <laughs> yeah. And I think the trend towards subscriptions goes beyond media. I mean, it's really the subscription and membership economy. And oh, I've it, seen several businesses pivot and go all in on that. I mean, for my own business where, you know, I generally do events, I've kind of had to switch my model uh <laughs> well for software so, they call it yeah. software as a service right. you know people figured that out a decade ago and yeah. and you know it, it, netflix it was quite apparent that that was you know people would pay to subscribe to movies even yeah. when they had to mail them uh mail the discs yeah. in the physical mail and you had to right. wait a few days for them uh that's and and of course we all subscribe to our music now right so it's clear that's a model that that will work uh it's also becoming clear that people will cancel. Uh, you know, churn is becoming a real thing. Mm-hmm. For a while, nobody looked at their credit card bills. <laughs> right. But yeah, I think yeah. people are becoming more savvy about that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fine if you're producing a good product. People will stay with you. Right. Um, how's the podcast uh, going at the Oregonian? I know that was a big initiative kind of pre-pandemic. Yes, I, yeah. I, I can't say firsthand. You'd have to ask Elliot News or, or Andrew Thien. Uh-huh. But from what I hear listening to them and, you know, from what I hear from the editors, I think it's going quite well. Oh, great. To hear. Uh, it is definitely exceeding the targets we set for them. What those targets were and how ambitious they are, I, I don't know. But they, they appear to be meeting the goals, exceeding the goals we had for them. Well, uh, I know, I know you're, you get, you're a guest on you know, your colleagues podcast there, but when are they going to get you behind a mic to have your own? Uh, nobody has talked to me about that. And, uh, I don't know. It, it, it it's an interesting idea. Uh, you know, you and I have talked about that yeah. possibility in the past. Yeah. I, I think business is one topic where people have an acute interest. Uh, but I, I think with, you know, the, the question is, is a market broad and shallow or, narrow and deep and business is probably more narrow and deep. And I think that it may take some, we may have to refine our model a little bit more before we say, okay, we won't reach quite as many people. Um, but those ones we'll reach are, are passionately interested. I say that, but our blazers podcast is blazers podcast is thriving and you know, yeah, everyone likes the blazers, but it's, it's a small subset of people who are really interested in, I think there's at least five Blazers podcasts in this market. Yeah. Well, who do I need to talk to to make this happen for you, Mike? Because <laughs> I just can't believe you don't have one. And when you, I know you don't get involved in the business side of it, but narrow and deep is good. This is where yeah. it's going to happen. So uh, <laughs> maybe I'll bring some people up here. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to Elliot. I, I think this is one thing that, well, number one, we've been so busy the last year. It's, yeah. Yeah. I think I told you last time, it was by far the busiest stretch of my career. Yeah. Uh, it was really overwhelming. Yeah. And um, now we're, we are having time. You know, there are fewer protests downtown. The pandemic is at least at a steady state or perhaps starting to recede. Uh, you know, there's no wildfires. There may be ice storms, but uh, we are yeah. having an opportunity to, to do more thinking about where we want to go and might be the sort of thing that comes up then i'm looking forward to it mike thanks as always yeah great on to see you. and yeah great to see you on zoom we'll, we'll do it in person you know hopefully sooner or later yeah it'd be fun it'd be yeah. fun um 
you know, at some point, some point we'll be back in the newsroom we'll have you back in yeah no i like see the old haunts and i i love guy i'll always love going in there and seeing everybody so thanks again mike good to see you the pdx executive podcast is a production of that cast a portland oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts you can learn more at thatcast.com and please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well 